Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 614. It is a Tuesday, March the 1st, 2011, and uh, that means that another month has slipped away. Another month has gone. And as I do from time to time, I'm going to ask you, how much more liberty have you created for yourself in the last month? Hope it's at least a little bit. If you're creating a little bit every day, you're sliding on the scale toward liberty, freedom, independence, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency. If you're not moving in that direction, you are moving in the other direction. It doesn't mean you have to take giant steps, but little tiny baby steps over time are how we free ourselves Remember, not from the system, but from the systems. All right, well, what are we going to talk about today? Today, um, it's kind of a two-parter. Yesterday, I talked to you about genetic modified organisms. And uh, kind of a dark show, really. I mean, the more that I went into it, the worse it would seem to get yesterday. And the reality is I could have gone for another four hours yesterday bringing you real relevant news and verified sources of the dangers of GMOs, And I think the most frightening thing with them is watchdog groups saying to the government, before these things are introduced, don't do this. If you do, this is what is going to happen. You know, it will escape, it will cross-pollinate, what have you. The people that are, you know, lobbying the government and the Department of Agriculture, by the way, the Department of Agriculture I didn't get to yesterday, basically it's like from Monsanto to the Department of Agriculture, this is an employee, back to Monsanto, back to the Department of Agriculture, back to Monsanto, it's like a revolving door, these guys go in and out of government and back to work for Monsanto and Conagra and some of the other big ones, but Monsanto is the biggest one that, that does this, so... You know, it was, it was all of these instances where all the people from Monsanto or whoever, whoever's doing the work, and the government said, it's not going to happen. Then they deregulate it, they allow it out, and then what happens is whatever the watchdog group said was going to happen, happens. We saw it yesterday with bent grass, and then we know we're going to be bringing uh, GMO alfalfa out next, and of course, Experts are saying it absolutely will cross-pollinate into the, the gene pool. And, of course, the people that want to do it are saying, no, 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 we know how to keep this from happening. And let me quote from the mutual fund prospectus. History is no guarantee of future uh, – uh, past performance is no guarantee of future results. But history has shown it to be a strong indicator. So I ask you in the, in the, uh, the concept of GMO alfalfa when they start planting that everywhere, who do you think is going to be right? The government and the Department of Agriculture and Monsanto or the watchdog groups and the experts that say it will get into the gene pool, it will cross-pollinate, and it will put GMO genes into alfalfa everywhere from coast to coast. Who do you think is going to be right? So with all of that, I decided we needed to do a follow-up show where I'd tell you, well, what the hell can you do about this? And the reality is if it comes to growing alfalfa, corn, soy, and stuff like that, It's really tough for you to do much about it anymore, even growing your own. But there are places where you can make your stand. 
And one of the ways you can make your stand is by growing your own, including with the crops that are going to have some cross-contamination, not from your supplier, but from the air that we breathe, uh, that is supposedly warming the planet, by the way. And some people just won't let that go. Um, and how to do that and how to set up personal seed storage, personal seed vaults, what a commercial, commercial seed bank is for, what it won't do for you, what it will do for you, how to save your own seed. When I did this recent video on YouTube, I got so many people that were like, Jack, um, but, but what about this? What about that? I got tons of emails off this video I did about the, uh, the, the emergency seed bank from Directive21.com. So hopefully all those questions will get answered today as well. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Self-Defense, run by the uh, well-known Frank Sharp Jr., one of uh, the top firearms instructors in the country. Uh, Fortress Self-Defense actually has a huge cadre of instructors, and uh, they provide some of the best self-defense training you'll find. And if you have a large enough group and you can't go to them, they will come to you. Check out Fortress Self-Defense. Remember, I always say it's one thing to get another gun and another gun and another gun, but how many firearms training courses have you taken? Uh, a gun without training is probably more dangerous uh, than, uh, than not having a gun at all in some instances. So make sure you're getting good training, if not from Fortress, from somebody. But I'll tell you what, if you ask me where to go right now, I'm going to tell you Fortress Self-Defense. Uh, next up today, the Berkey guy, Jeff, over there at Directive21.com. Guess his ears are burning today because we're talking about him so much with his emergency seed bank. But what I, what I really love Jeff for is the service he does in making the need for water filtration known. Um, there's one thing you cannot live without. You absolutely cannot live without water. It's impossible. You can live without food for, for days, even weeks. People have done it on hunger strikes. You know what no one's ever done successful? A one-week-long water strike. 48 hours without water and many times less. And you drop over and you're pretty well dead unless somebody starts running saline into your veins. So make sure you have a way to keep your water clean and pure and safe to drink in good times and bad. And the best system I know to do that with is the Berkey water filtration system. Uh, also the most economical system that I'm aware of. They cost a little bit going out the door. They seem expensive. But over the long haul, when you look at price per gallon, uh, you're, you're looking at filtering water in the neighborhood of around uh, 3 to 6 cents a gallon, depending on how often you decide to change those filters out. All right. Um, also want to have you guys make sure you're, you're subscribing to me on YouTube. I'm doing a big push on YouTube this week. I announced this yesterday. I'll announce it again today in case you didn't hear yesterday's show. What I'm going to start doing on YouTube is a lot more gear reviews. And uh, that's because I have a lot of people that want to send me gear. Tons of people that want to send me gear. I've held off on it because we're in the middle of a move. And the last thing I need to be doing is accumulating too much stuff while we're getting ready to move. Once we're moved, I am, and that's the next month, okay? We're, we're, we're almost out of here, honestly. Half our stuff's already up there. Um, once we're out of here, I have, and I have an office set up and everything up there, it'll be easier to do gear reviews. So I'm going to get tons of stuff, and some of it's going to be cool, and I'm going to want to keep it. All of it's going to be cool, or I'm not going to want them to send it to me, but how many emergency radios does a guy need? How many bags does a guy need? How many of any one particular type of item does a guy need? 
only so much redundancy, right? So what I'm going to do is the majority of the gear reviews I do, I'm going to be giving away back to the audience for the cost of shipping. So I get a bag, I do a review, I've got 50 bags, I don't need another one, I'll give it away to an audience member. You have to be a subscriber to YouTube to participate in that. In fact, I'll be putting the code to win the product in the videos. So you want to stick with me on YouTube. I'm trying to up those subscribers. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. And since we're going to talk about seeds today, I just wanted to give you this, the, uh, the benefits you get from a seed standpoint of Member Support Brigade. Seed Savers Exchange, 10% off uh, um, annual membership for your first year. So that saves you 10 bucks right there. High mowing organic seeds, you get free shipping on all orders. That That's really actually better than a lot of times to discount on the purchase because if you're buying a lot of stuff, the shipping can be expensive. Uh, and also, Victory Seeds provides 10% off all seed orders. So, if you're going to do business with seeds this year, consider using the guys that support us, even if you're not MSB. Even if you're not MSB, uh, consider ordering first from Seed Savers Exchange, High Mowing, and Victory, because they are supporting the members support brigade, and they're by the show. All right, with that, let's get into this topic. Um, you know, when I look at the seed industry as a whole, and not really the seed industry. They're not the one that are committing these sins, I guess, is almost what I consider this stuff at this point. Um, it's not It's not the seed industry itself. It's the survival seed industry. It's the preparedness industry selling emergency seeds and emergency seed banks. There's a ton of misinformation. I won't go too deep into this today because the video that I've mentioned on the seed bank explains this very, very much in detail. But there are three primary types of seeds out there today. There are genetically modified seeds, there are um, hybrid seeds, and there are open pollinated seeds. And you often hear heirloom. All heirloom are open pollinated, not all open pollinated are necessarily heirloom. We'll get to that in a second. GMO is what we talked about yesterday. GMO means that somebody somewhere in a white coat, most likely, in a laboratory, uses a virus to transmutate a gene and takes a gene from one organism and splices it into the genetic code of another. And the, since that strand of DNA is so small and the gene on the strand is so small, we can't go in there and like take it out with a pair of tweezers and pluck it in. We actually take a virus and, for lack of a better term, infect the virus with the gene and then use the virus to attach itself to the gene strand and change the genetic makeup of the plant using a gene that's not from the same species. So this isn't like we take a jalapeno gene and inject it into a sweet pepper gene. This is what we take, and this is honest to God the truth. We take the gene from a fish and we inject it into the genetic makeup of a cotton seed. And then you say to yourself, well, cotton, that kind of sucks, but... You know, we don't eat cotton. How many things in America do you think have cottonseed oil in them? There's also a product called a range cube. A lot of cottonseed oil in that. What do you do a range cube with a range cube? Uh, you feed it to cattle. There's also these big giant cottonseed cakes they feed to cattle. So, you know, that you've got the cottonseed oil and cottonseed product being fed to cattle that we're eating and being put in the food that we're eating. Just as one example. But that's the big thing I want you to take away from that. That's a GMO. And we're not going to talk about that a lot more today because I did that plenty yesterday about the dangers associated with it. But what I want you to understand is GMO is not something that can occur naturally. 
there is no natural process where a gene gets modified in the way that we mean when we speak of a GMO seed. It just doesn't happen. In the seed world, there's a couple ways that seeds can evolve. One is through a natural mutation. All right? A natural mutation would be like the first seedless orange. One day, somebody grew up an orange tree, and the oranges on it were seedless. And they went, this is good. But it was a natural mutation. Now, normally, that mutation would not survive in the wild. So they took that orange tree, and they would cut branches off it, and they would graft them to the roots of other trees. And as they would grow out, they made more and more stock, and now we have seedless oranges all over the place. And there's other ways that that's been done, but that was the way the first seedless orange came. That doesn't really help us with seed understanding, but it does help us understanding there are natural mutations that occur. So a natural mutation that could occur, one day you go out, you look at your, 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 your jalapeno bush, and on that jalapeno bush are jalapeno peppers with extremely, even for a jalapeno, thick walls that grow longer than any jalapeno you've ever seen before. And that genetic trait may or may not be able to be passed on to the next generation. It may be a, a hybridization that you're not aware of. Some pepper may have crossed with it, or it may have been a mutation within the gene itself, and you can work with it and try to recreate it. But that's one way. A shortcut to this is hybridization. Hybrids are not evil. I want everybody that has any fear of hybrid seeds right now to repeat after me. Hybrids are not evil. Hybrids are not evil. And I want you to say that to yourself as many times as it takes to get out of your head that there is anything bad, per se, about a hybrid. What a hybrid is, is like when your Labrador Retriever male dog runs off and has a nice time with the neighbor's poodle. And out comes a Labradoodle, okay? And maybe you didn't want one, and maybe the neighbor didn't want one, but now there's a whole little pile of Labradoodles. And some creative person says, I'm going to market that term, and they have. And a Labradoodle is an expensive little puppy. Very, very expensive, right? Hopefully it was the right color cross to get whatever everybody's looking for. But that's a hybrid. Now there's nothing that, that's unnatural about that occurrence. Dogs interbreed all the time. The dog breeds we have today all come from hybridization of various types. We breed this type of dog to that type of dog, and then we keep breeding back. You know, we breed back siblings, and we breed back to parents to reinforce a certain trait. And if we do that long enough, we could make a, a two Labradoodles, and if they got busy, they would have little baby Labradoodles. Okay? And that's, that's just how every breed has ever been created. Eventually, in time, working down and calling out the traits you don't want and only breeding back and breeding and interbreeding the traits you do want. What happens though if we take our Labradoodle and we go out and we find somebody else's Labradoodle that were both by direct crosses. This one was a lab and a poodle. That was a lab and a poodle. We take our two Labradoodles and we let them do what dogs do if we let them go. And we would expect to come back and see a whole bunch of little puppy Labradoodles in the future. And what do we find? We find dogs that look like mongrels. Some look more like a Labrador. Some look like a poodle. And if we're lucky, one or two out of a big litter might look like a Labradoodle and might not. If we do have one that looks like a Labradoodle, he's a very special little puppy. And we need to put him aside and we need to breed him to another Labradoodle. And if we keep doing that long enough, 
will get all Labradoodles in our litter. But in the, the second generation, or the F2, we're going to get mostly some traits of one, some traits of the other. It won't produce true to type. That's a hybrid seed. So if you want to save seed, a hybrid is not good for saving seed. Otherwise, there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't use them. It just means that maybe you only use them for certain things. In other words, there are hybrid tomatoes that are highly resistant to certain tomato diseases. If you're plagued by tomato diseases and every heirloom tomato you plant ends up with blossom end rot and, and Folsom's disease and wilt and blight and everything else, well, you can't grow tomatoes anyway, so why not grow a hybrid? There are some tomato hybrids that are very good at getting an early start in weather that's marginal as far as temperature. Can't handle real heavy frost, but can get going real early in the season with some frost protection. So if you live in a place that only has a 100-day growing season or a 90-day growing season, that may be your only option to grow tomatoes. So when it comes to having a seed bank or seed reserve, what do you do? You buy lots of hybrid tomato seeds, and you grow them out over a few years, and you keep replacing them. And if you're growing hybrid seeds and heirloom seeds, you worry about something called a separation distance and some isolation. We'll get to that later on in the show. All I want you to understand, there is nothing wrong with a hybrid. And every single open-pollinated variety seed we have today, unless it comes straight out of the wild, so in other words, your orach, right? That's a wild plant, basically, that, that people now grow domestically. Um, lamb's quarters. Nobody's really worked with lamb's quarters and cross-pollination and all. It's a wild plant that people grow domestically in some areas now. Uh, or, or thistle. Or, you know, a lot of other plants that come straight out of the wild. New Zealand spinach is pretty much a wild plant that's being cultivated domestically now. Nobody really worked with it. There's not like a bunch of varieties that they interbred and eventually purified out. But when you look at, let's say, native corn, If you look at corn when it was very, before man messed with it, this goes back thousands of years. It's probably one of, if not the most ancient crop ever worked with by man. Corn in its natural state is a, like, a, it almost looks like a big giant weed head. It just, it, it's, it doesn't look like anything you could really get much food off of. It's like a big stand of grass with like, if you've ever seen undeveloped corn where it's like only a few of the kernels have developed and it just doesn't quite look right. Something went wrong with it. That's kind of what the original corn looked like. So mankind worked with corn and saw a corn with unusually full kernels and a corn that had an unusual uh, ability to adapt to drought and purposely crossed them. And then they took the results and everything that came out of those results that was positive, they kept seed from. And everything that wasn't what they were looking for, they threw away. And then they took that seed and bred it to a second generation. And just like the Labradoodle, most of it did not come back the way the first seed did. They threw it away. They took the stuff that reproduced the right way. And every successive generation, until they get out of seven or eight generations of that, eventually you get to a point where you call out all the negative genes, you only have the positive genes left, and all you've done is shortcut something that could happen in nature. That's what a hybrid does. It makes a plant that's more advantageous to you or to the environment in a shortcut because you helped the survival of the fittest. Or in some cases, you've actually helped the survival of the not-so-fit. 
Because you're not looking for a plant that can grow in the middle of a forest. You're looking for a plant that with your care will produce the most calories or most reliable crop or largest shield or what have you. That's a hybrid. You get nothing wrong with it. What is an heirloom and what is open pollinated? Open pollinated is mostly seed that has already gone through that process. So when you look at your bush beans today, your Romano bush beans, nice um, heirloom variety of, uh, of a Romano bush bean. And it may be passed down by your own family. You plant those in the ground, and they produce every time you save seed, you plant them, you get the same bush. At one time, that bean didn't look like that. It was a cross-hybrid process and a culling period that got that bean to where it is today. And as long as you don't let that bean cross with another bean, it will always produce true to, true to type. That's open-pollinated. So when you look at certain corns that are called open-pollinated, but not necessarily an heirloom, that means that as long as they don't cross-pollinate heavily with other corn, and with corn there's always a little bit of cross-pollination. I don't care if you're sitting in the middle of nowhere, and the closest other cornfield from you is 20 miles away, odds are you're going to get some minor cross-pollination. Live with it. It's not that big a deal. It's the, it's the majority of it. The reason I say this is they've actually proven that some corn pollen has hit corn stands in the United States from China. So the isolation of corn is very difficult because it's a wind pollinator and because it's, it's grown in such large amounts. So, you know, something that was maybe a wind pollinator but only grown in small stands is not going to go as far as something that was literally millions and millions and millions of acres of this stuff with pollen blowing everywhere. So there, there's only so much isolation you can do, but as long as you grow it smart, you can reproduce corn that's going to produce true to type. What makes a open pollinated an heirloom is if it is done for successive generations and developed by, let's say, uh, a particular method or a particular family. In other words, if your grandmother had a ring that she got from her great-grandmother, and you were the the only son on the on in the line and when you got married she handed that ring to you and said give this to your wife and your wife wore that ring and eventually when you had children you either gave it to a son to give to his wife or you gave it to a daughter for her to wear herself that ring would be a very cherished heirloom because it was handed down and it developed a reputation in the family And these heirloom seed varieties are just that. They're generally started by a, a person or a family and handed down through generations. And eventually, they get out into the mass market. But we know where they came from. That's what makes them heirloom. So all open pollinated seeds are not necessarily heirloom varieties, but all heirloom seeds are open pollinated, or they couldn't be handed down. Hopefully that makes sense. So why do I tell you all this? Why do I make sure that you understand these things? Because I don't like to see anybody do anything in fear. I don't like to see anybody turn away a good quality resource that they could use. So when I hear a gardener go, well, I won't use a hybrid, and he'll look at his tomatoes and they're just wilted to the ground, I'm like, dude, if you grow hybrid, oh, I want no genetically modified seeds. I want none of that, that scientific stuff in my garden. Okay, fool, that's not what it is. And this is being used by commercial seed bank producers to sell seed banks to you. And while I'm a fan of commercial seed banks, I want you to know their limitations, what they do and what they don't do, and I don't ever want you to buy one because you're afraid that the seeds might have been genetically modified some way. All right, I don't want you buying because of bullshit like that. 
All right, so what does a commercial seed bank do for you? Basically, it shortcuts a lot of years of work. It puts a large quantity of seeds already prepared into your hands, and if you buy from a good supplier, you get a comparable price if you went out and did it by yourself. I had people say, oh, I think that, that thing from Director 21 is a ripoff. Well, why do you think that? Because I can make my own seed bank for next to nothing. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm just going to go out and buy heirloom seeds and, and save them. Okay, how many are you going to buy? Well, whatever I want. Okay, well, how about this? How about you go out and you price heirloom open-pollinated seeds in all the varieties in that seed bank and all the quantities in that seed bank, and then you go out and you price the Mylar uh, sealed uh, bags that they're in. You go out and you you, you price the, 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 the desiccant, which is what keeps the moisture from becoming a problem. You package all of that together, and then you price an ammo can to put that in, and and then you look at the price of the, the package. And the people that have said, oh, it's a ripoff, when they look at it that way, they go, well, I guess that's probably about how much it would cost then to do it myself. And we need to understand this about any business. Just because you can do something for less doesn't mean make the business selling it a ripoff. Now, if they're selling you $5 worth of seeds for $120, it's a ripoff. Okay? If you could put together that bank for $100 and they sell for $120, that's called margin. That's called a profit. And a business can't exist and provide you a service without a freaking profit. And those of you out there that have this asinine idea that a business should put something together and always sell it to you for less than you can do it yourself, you don't have anything left to buy in that world. You'll have to do everything yourself. Including you can't go get the seeds at Walmart or order them from Seeds of Change or order them from Seed Savers or order them from High Mowing or order them from Burpee or Parks or anybody if that business is not making a profit. And a 20% margin in this day and age is not exor- it's, it's not exorbitant at all. So please don't begrudge somebody a profit. Without a profit, they can't serve you. When I used to uh, sell cabling to my customers, and I would get in a bidding situation, and they'd say, so-and-so is 5% less than you. I'd say, then I think you should hire them. And their mouth would literally hit the floor. And they'd go, what? I'd go, if, if that's what you really want, I think you should hire them. Well, can you meet their price? No. I bid the job based on the service and the quality and the cut date that I deliver. And if it's 5%, maybe you should hire them. Or if you want my level of service, you should hire me. And then usually they would do business with me. When they'd say, well, so-and-so is 25% less than you, I'd say, well, you better not hire that guy. And then their job would really hit the floor. They'd go, what? You know, what do you mean? Well, I, I bid this job and I do this for a living and I know what it's going to cost me to do this job. And I've got a margin somewhere between 20 and 30% here. That means that that other guy that you're talking to, he's not going to make any money on this job. In fact, he's probably going to lose money on this job because he's underbid it. And then the response would come, why should I care? And the answer was, because the day that this job that's going to take 40 days to do, that's putting your critical infrastructure in, uh, goes to a point where he stops making money and starts to lose money, you'll stop being a valued customer and become a pain in his ass. And all he'll want to do is get out from under it as quickly as possible. Or you can do business with me, allow me to make a fair profit so I can do the job properly for you, and we're going to stick with you to the end. And then they would generally do business with me. Why do I tell you that story? Is it because Gary Vanderchuk's coming on tomorrow and I want you to think like business people? No. I want you to understand that a business has to make a profit, including a seed production company. And it's a very tough business to make money in. All right, that's all I'm going to say. So what is a seed bank for? To me, a seed bank, again, is to get a large quantity of prepared seeds into your possession right away. Who shouldn't buy a seed bank? 
If you look at all the varieties and go, I don't like half of the crap that's in there and I won't eat it, don't buy it. If you look at it and go, I don't have enough land to ever even get close to planting this many seeds and I don't see seeds as a barter item, don't buy it. Um, if you look, you know, I mean, it, it's all up to you. But what I do want you to understand is just because a guy's charging $100 for seeds or $120 for seeds doesn't mean he's ripping you off. How many seeds, How what varieties, and how are they prepared? And do you want to do the work yourself? Or do you want to shortcut that work? Because the other side of this is, as you save seeds, and you plant seeds and save seeds, you can save tremendous amounts of seeds and build up your own reserves. Do you want to shortcut that? In other words, you can go out, plant an apple tree, wait five years for it to go into heavy production, and after that point, with a peeler, a core, and a dehydrator, you can make number 10 cans of, of apple, dried apples until the cow comes home. But if that's the case, and if you use apples and like dried apples, would you go out and buy a bunch of number 10 cans, or would you wait five years for the tree to grow and start producing? And that's how I see a seed bank. It's a shortcut. And it is a shortcut with professionally prepared seeds for storage. I also want to talk about seeds going bad. I think that there's people like, well, well that seed bank only has a four-year shelf life. What's with a guaranteed germination rate? And that's with no control over how you store the seeds, recommending you store them between 65 and 75 degrees. Seeds don't spoil if stored in, an, in a, a low oxygen, not a no oxygen, low oxygen, moisture-free, dark environment. In that environment, seeds never go bad. What happens is inside the seed, there's little chemical processes going on. The seed is alive. No matter how dry and dead it looks to you, if it, if it will germinate, if it's still at a point where I put it in the ground and a little sprout will come up and it'll grow, it's living inside. It's dormant and it appears, it's alive. And those little processes are the same processes that when it gets the right temperature and the right moisture for the right length of time, say, sprout roots, sprout a stalk, sprout leaves, produce energy with photosynthesis, become a plant. And those processes are always running. The only thing that happens is by reducing moisture and light and temperature, they're slowed down. Think suspended animation. Remember sci-fi? They put the guy on the ship. They put him to sleep because he's going to be on the ship for 20 years. And he wakes up and he's still the same age. because they, And he's not really. He's maybe aged a year in 20 because they slowed it down. Now we can't do that with modern science yet with human beings. But we can do it with a seed because it's a natural process for a seed. It's how the seed gets to next season. Think about this. With no people around, you got your amaranth, your wild amaranth seed. And that thing goes to seed and the big seed head comes and all the seeds, the wind comes in the fall after it's dried out and seeds fall all over the place. Now it's still warm enough out that the seed should be able to sprout. But the seed knows, I can't do it yet. And then eventually it gets cold. It's very cold. And, it, and, and snow covers the ground and all the leaves cover the ground and it's dark and cold. It's also wet, but the cold suppresses the seed. Eventually, we get to the spring and the spring rains come and it gets really wet and the sun warms the ground and moisture and heat together and eventually, as that little sprout finds a crack, light, The three things make the seed grow together. Moisture, light, uh, and heat. And what does that tell us? That we need to eliminate those three things to prolong the storage life of the seed. 
And that's really what it's all about with seed storage, reducing those three things. Now, I was really talking, though, about seeds going bad. So what happens to a seed properly or improperly stored over time that makes it, quote, go bad? It fails to germinate. It doesn't grow wrong. All right, if it sprouts, it's probably going to be just fine. It doesn't grow food that's toxic. It's not like it becomes poisonous. It just doesn't germinate. So if I have a bunch of seeds in my vault, and I'm storing them however I am, five years from now, it's not that nothing will grow. It's that my germination rate might be down to 50% or 60%, 40%, depending on the seed and the storage type. So that's all that happens to seeds. So if you have a lot of seeds stored, Even if you have a 40% germination rate, if you have more seed than you need, you overplant, and the, the, the seedlings that come up, you work with those. You've also now, through genetic uh, predisposition, found seed stock that if you keep breeding it back, should provide longer storing seeds. Remember, with, with seed saving, you can in enhance any trait. Tall bushes, short bushes, good storage varieties of food, uh, juicy Large, small, how many clusters form on a, you know, like a pepper, how many peppers form in a cluster. Any trait you want to isolate, if you just breed seed from that over and over again, eventually you'll get, uh, seed stock that produces that trait, including long stored seeds. Uh, next up, I, I want to kind of move on now to saving your own seeds, because I had a lot of questions about saving your own seeds. And the first one, let's talk about a little bit of what we've been chatting about already, which is how do I, how do I figure out what, what tomato do I save the seeds from? What pepper do I save the seeds from? Well, in general, you want to save seeds from the, 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 the fruit that's the largest, healthiest fruit. So you have a couple, let's say, an, an heirloom variety of, of tomato out there, like black crim. About four tomato plants grown, and, and two of the plants are producing really great tomatoes, because you want to go from at least two plants for diversity. Well, on those plants, you see a couple tomatoes that are just like the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen. Those are the ones to save seeds from. And you want to try to get, a, but you want to try to get multiple tomatoes and multiple seeds. And you might even go, since there's so many seeds in a tomato, you might want to save the best tomatoes from all four plants. And maybe two of each. And then only take 20% of the seeds from each tomato. And then mix those up well in your storage. And maybe take the rest and give them away or barter them out. But the big thing I want to get into you here is you don't want only seeds from one tomato and one plant. You want to keep diversity in your gene pool. That's where trading seeds is also very, very useful. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But that will help you expand your gene pool and still be locally adapted. It's really important to save seeds in this day and age as far as I'm concerned because if I just rely on buying black crim tomato seeds for instance from uh, Victory Seeds or Seed Savers I'm going to get great seed it's going to do very well for me but over time my goal should be to produce a black crim tomato that's best adapted to grow in my little spot in Virginia or Maine or Pennsylvania or North Carolina or wherever I live It's adapted to my particular microclimate, my particular soil types. And the longer I grow that, eventually that black crim becomes a Spearco black crim. Eventually that golden bantam corn becomes a Spearco golden bantam corn. It becomes my own family name's heirloom. Because if I've grown it for seven, eight, nine F generations, filial uh, generations, your F series, 
in my environment. That Bantam corn that I would grow, let's say in Arkansas, and I've grown it for eight years, and maybe some good years, maybe I get a two-crop year, right? So I might have 10, 11 generations of this seed being reproduced right in my little area. Well, someone else with a similar area, that corn is going to be better for them than any golden bantam they can get from anywhere else because it's now adapted to all of the things that are unique to my environment. I also really need to talk to you guys about separation distances and cross-pollination. A question that I got several versions of were, well, Jack, okay, a hybrid's okay, so I buy a hybrid pepper. And uh, maybe two hybrid pepper plants from the local store. And uh, because there's some kind of a, a unique pepper. Let's say a mariachi uh, hybrid pepper, which is a pepper I love to grow, by the way. Uh, mariachi hybrid is kind of a little bit bigger as far as the diameter than a jalapeno. Nice thick walls. Very, very mild when it's yellow. And as it turns to like an orange-red color, it actually gets hotter than a jalapeno, even though the package says it doesn't. It, at least mine do. Uh, and doing them with the bacon and cheese like a jalapeno, they're great. They, to me, they have a different kind of a, a different flavor, almost like reminds me almost honestly of a habanero flavor with nowhere near the heat. Uh, when they turn that red orange color, kind of a more banana pepper taste when they're yellow. So I like these. I mean, there's a lot to be done with them there. Yellow chopped up, thrown in a salad, little tiny, tiny bit of bite, nice banana pepper flavor, thicker walls than a banana pepper. Let them go red and they're, they're hot peppers that you can cook with or, or do other things with. Well, if I put that pepper in my bed, and in my bed I have four California Wonder Peppers. And, uh, I'm growing those California Wonder Peppers, and those are an heirloom, an open-pollinated variety, uh, and I've been saving seeds from them. Will the, holop- the mariachi cross-pollinate that hybrid? Will that evil hybrid uh, you know, make whoopee, basically, with my California Wonders? And the answer is maybe, because it's a pepper. And peppers are largely self-fertile. They have what's called a perfect flower. So that means every flower has both male and female uh, parts. And the flower itself, without any help from insects, can reproduce. It helps to have insects there, and insects will pollinate peppers. I see mason bees and little flies on my pepper plants all the time. So it can happen, but it's less likely. If you want to maintain purity, what you need to do is follow separation distance guidelines. In other words, those two pepper plants should not go in the same bed. They should be separated. By some distance. And I'm going to give you some resources in a bit where you can, in fact, one great site is really the only resource you need where you can look up any plant. It'll give you separation distance guidelines. And I'll tell you, you don't need to go quite as extreme as they say. If you did half of what they said, you're probably okay, especially with plants like peppers. And remember, it's not a perfect science. You're not a scientist in a lab. You're working with nature. But there are some other things you can do uh, to create greater isolation. One is, and this is more for things like corn. Let's say you want to grow golden bantam corn and you want to grow a flower corn, say a blue Indian corn. And uh, you don't want the blue Indian corn to cross with your golden bantam because you want to save seeds from both. So what you would do is you'd plant your, let's say your golden bantam and then you would let it grow for about four weeks, maybe five weeks. 
And then you could go ahead and maybe in the bed that you're going to plant your blue corn, have an early crop like a lettuce and spinach bed or something like that. So that by the time five weeks goes, your lettuce has gone to seed, your spinach is bolting, you, you turn that into your soil, and now you plant your blue Indian corn. Well, at the, that, that point, right, we've got 35 days into the golden bantam. It's a 90-day to harvest corn. So it's got its tassels up. It's got its little corn cob starting to form, little silks coming out. It's doing its pollination thing. Well, where's your blue corn? It's still in the ground. By the time it's really dropping uh, pollen and it's hitting its, its little silks and it's starting to form its golden bantam, little juicy, little sweet little nuggets of corn, your blue corn's maybe a foot high. And it's four weeks, five weeks before it's going to have tassels and pollinate. And it's, more importantly, it's going to have the silks out to receive the pollen. Well, by the time that happens, your golden bantam is either harvested or it's standing dead. And there's absolutely no way that it's going to cause you any grief and cross-pollinate. So one thing you can do, especially with plants that have a defined life cycle, like a tomato you plant it, it grows all year till frost. But something like a corn, it grows, it produces, it dies. You can do succession planting. Uh, distances, of course, is another thing that you can do. The further you put two varieties apart, the less likely they are to pollinate. And if you had, let's say, three beds, and you had your peppers in one bed and your other peppers in another bed, and in the middle bed you had a nice high crop like corn, it's going to help with any kind of pollination issues. Flies, bees, and insects can still transmit your pollen, especially if it's a flower-based pollinator. There's wind pollinators and flower pollinators. Uh, but again, a perfect flower like a pepper, less susceptible. But check. Um, in fact, I'll just go ahead and give you the resource right now. It's the International Seed Saving Institute, and it's available at seedsave.org, not com. Seedsave.org. This is not Seed Savers Exchange, though they have a lot of information on saving seeds as well. I'm going to talk about them at the end of today's show and why I think you should be a member. I think you should be a member of Seed Savers Exchange as much as I think you should be a member of the NRA. I think the work they do is equally important on a totally different front. Um, but seedsave.org is a great, and you'll be able to go in there and look up beans, look up broccoli, look up anything. It'll tell you exactly what to do to save your seed. In other words, how to process your seed, whether you just take it out or a tomato, you mash it up and send, you know, put it in water and let the, the, the scum form and then you clean them off. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find it there and, and the process whereby to do that. So again, that's seedsave.org. Dot org, and that's the International Seed Saving Institute. Uh, and you'll get all of the technical information you need from them because that would be hard to do on a show anyway. But I do want to talk about another way that you can save your seed and be true to type and not have cross-pollination with things that are considered very, very difficult. Uh, for instance, winter, winter squash. There's a winter squash uh, species, subspecies called C. maxima. C maxima. Most of your winter squash, not all, but most are C maxima varieties. Any C maxima variety of squash, and when you look at your seed catalogs, you usually see you know, like a big capital C, a period, and then a little word maxima. That's Latin for the species of the squash. So any C maxima will cross with any other C maxima. And you get some really interesting Franken squashes. Uh, first generation might be something useful. Even with squash, though, man, you cross certain squashes, it comes out kind of weird. Now, you could make your own hybrids and see what comes. There's no problem with that. Now, here's the thing. If I have, let's say, a butternut squash and a long-neck pumpkin squash, really I wouldn't do that because they both are the same type of squash. I mean, from a homesteader standpoint, you'd really want to grow one or the other. But just as an example, and I 
purposely cross-pollinate those. The first year, they're both going to look the same. The, the butternut's going to look like a butternut, and the long neck's going to look like a long neck. When I cut them open and pull the seeds out, I'll have to plant them to see what the results of the cross are. That's how hybrids work. It's not that they affect the first generation of, of, of production. So your butternut's not going to grow on the butternut vine looking weird. Your Franken-squash is going to come out looking weird. And I, I don't like to use the word Franken-squash because uh, it makes you think of GMOs. Again, it's not a GMO. It's just something a lot of people call uh, cross-squash because you didn't plan for it to happen. The next thing you know, you plant these seeds and some weird-looking gourd thing comes out of it. Well, the problem with squash is they require very large separation distances if you're going to grow 2C maximus. Now, the way around this is you grow multiple squash types. You can grow a summer squash... Uh, like a zucchini or a yellow crookneck squash. And a summer squash would be like a C. peepo is what they call it. P-E-P-O. C. peepo variety of squash. And But that also includes pumpkins. So if I want to grow zucchini and pumpkins, I've got cross-pollination issues. But let's say, I mean, because there's a lot of cool winter squashes. So let's let the summer stuff go for Let's say I want to grow a, a small variety of a Hubbard squash like a blue Hubbard, but a small variety, so it's not the huge one that gets so big it's hard to use. And I also want to grow a butternut squash. Well, they're both C maxima varieties. So they're also huge plants, and they take up a tremendous amount of space. So if I want to separate these things, I literally need acreage, and I need gardens in totally different zones, totally different sectors of my property, just for, for separation distance to do the job, and it still may not be enough. So I would almost need to have a neighbor somewhere down the road a couple miles, and I would get seeds for his uh, his butternut, and I would give him seeds uh, for, for uh, my, uh, what did I say, my, my small variety of Blue Hubbard. Um, problem. I still want to be able to save seeds next year. Eventually, you know, either I trade squash with the guy, or I, you know, but one way or another, it doesn't seem like I can grow my own, but I can And I can do this through a process called manual pollination. And the way you do manual pollination with squash is super simple. Squash produce um, asexually. In other words, the, the flowers are male and female type flowers. Very, very easy to tell the difference. When you see a female flower about to bloom on a squash, it will have a little baby looking squash behind it. And if you ever have the flower open on that little uh, female squash, and then the flower falls off a few days later and then the little squash doesn't develop and it falls off, odds are what has happened is that, that that flower never got pollinated. Your bees didn't do their job, or your flies didn't do their job, or what have you. That That's why it didn't get pollinated. And it's kind of cool to watch bees work a squash flower, because they're so big, and you see that little bee, and he goes all the way up inside of there, you know, and then you can see him back out, and he comes out, and that's how those guys get pollinated. So let's say I've got two huge squash vines growing not that far apart from each other, and I don't want cross-pollination. I want, I want to grow my own, and I want my Hubbard, and I want my Buttercup. Or I want my Zucchini, and I want my Pumpkin. So I don't want my Peepos crossing. I don't want my Maximus crossing. Uh, I don't want my Mixtas. That's another variety, and there's a fourth one I can't remember. Uh, but So now what I do is I watch for formation of blossoms, and I pick a few of my female flowers. And when they're just about to open, but they haven't opened yet, so the insects couldn't get in there, I get a male flower of the, of the same variety, and I very gently pull the female flower open enough to expose uh, the stamen, and, or uh, the pistil, actually. And I take my male flower, I just pull all of the easiest way to do this, instead of using a uh, Q-tip or something like that, just pull all the uh, flower part off and just leave your stamen 
uh, the, the inside part of the male flower, and I just touch it multiple times to that female flower. And then I close that flower down with my hands gently, and I take some paper tape, like masking tape, and I tape that flower shut so that it will never open. And that it's now been pollinated, the plant knows that it's been pollinated, within a day or two, that female blossom just falls off. And I have an absolutely pure pollination of my squash, and I'll tell you a secret. With as many people as grow squash, and as far as bees travel, and other pollinating insects travel, for the best results with a plant like squash, because it's so dadgone easy, you're better off doing that anyway. The thing is, that can be done anywhere. Since peppers are self-pollinating, when little buds form, you can put a little bitty case of something over top of your blossom. And when it opens, open it up, use a little Q-tip, cross-pollinate it with another flower from a known variety, and put a little case back over it, some, like, a little, uh, like a little piece of uh, cloth or something like that, like a little mesh to keep your insects out of it. So whatever you're growing, if you really want to get pure seed, you can do this manual pollination process. Again, check out the recommended distances at seedsave.org, and it's not generally necessary with a lot of things. But if you're growing a lot of variety and you want to ensure some pure seed, you can do that. Important thing, use like zip ties or something and create some kind of tagging so you know at harvest which uh, fruits or which vegetables have been manually pollinated. Okay, So that, that's important as well. Um, The next thing is I want to talk to you about building your own personal seed vaults. How do you create a seed vault or a seed bank? And, and, and what do you do so that when you're saving these seeds, you get a long storage life out of them? Well, remember, the, the, the things that make a seed grow are the same thing that are the enemies of storing that seed. And they're light, heat, and moisture. The warmer, the moisture, and the brighter the environment, the less time you'll get of your seeds being saved. You do not want an oxygen-free environment. In fact, I say oxygen-free is not the way to be. So people take seeds, they take their O2 absorbers, they put them in a vacuum seal bag, and they go with that vacuum sealer and and you know pull all the oxygen out. And any trace amount of oxygen that's still in there, that O2 absorber sucks up, and they think, man, that's the why seeds are going to be good for a million years. And a lot of those seeds might survive, but a lot of those seeds are going to die. Seeds actually need a little bit of oxygen. Remember what I said. It's a suspended animation that stores a seed, not a complete, total shutdown. There's life in there. And oxygen and carbon dioxide are kind of necessary. So that's why when you get a good seed bank like Jeff's, you pull it out and it's like almost like a vacuum seal job that's not quite done. You know, you ever like, your bag doesn't quite seal right and you pick it up and you can move it? You can move it around. It's sealed. There's no air can come in or out, but there's still some air in there. That's the way to store your seeds. You also want to keep them free of light. What does that mean? It means probably the best packaging for your seeds would be Mylar bags. Now, there's other things you can use and, and, and have been used, and it has to do with how long are you saving your seeds. If you're saving your seeds from this year, you're going to plant them next year, and that's really all you're doing, and you might plant half and save half for the following year. You get yourself one of those little Ziploc bags, you put your seeds in there, you label them. Always label your seeds. Not just the variety, when you, the date you harvested them. right? The, 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 you need to know the date you harvested them because that's your shelf life. It's not when you planted them. I, I planted this seed on, you know, in, in February of 2011. Well, if you harvested it in September of 2011, and the same, look, again, put, when you take seed out, if you 
take seed from a plant and then a month later you get more seed. They need to be stored separately and labeled separately. They're different harvests of the same seed variety or seed from the same plant. But if you put that in a Ziploc bag and then put that into a coffee can or something that keeps the light out, that's, it's going to be good enough for a season or two. So when we go beyond that, that we need to think uh, a little bit more creatively. Envelopes are okay. I know a lot of people use the little, they look like little manila envelopes, basically. They're easy to write on and label, and they're great for your exchanges because you're sending a guy 20 seeds, you drop them in that little envelope, and maybe three or four packs like that. So they're great for that type of exchanging. But if you're going to save your seeds for more than a couple seasons, you really don't want them. And I'm not a big fan of them, even for one or two seasons. I'm okay with them for one season, but I would prefer to use Ziploc. Okay? Because um, he still allows quite a bit of permeability, quite a, a bit of moisture. The humidity, so if it's very humid in your home on a given day, unless they're in something else that's sealed from the humidity, the, the, it will only be a short matter of time before the humidity inside the envelope becomes the same as the humidity inside your house. Where if you have them in a Ziploc bag, especially if you put a desiccant in there, which you can buy these little desiccant packs, you know, uh, it's basically like a silica thing in there that, that takes up moisture, and you can use those to store your seeds if you want to. Um, it's going to keep that a very, very dry environment. And even just pushing all the air out of a Ziploc bag and sealing it, you're not going to vacuum seal it, which we already described you don't want to do. You're going to keep the moisture level. So I'm a bigger fan of Ziploc bags for this. Again, making sure you're labeling everything, though. And uh, just a word of warning, a lot of times Sharpies will come off a Ziploc bag, so you need to put a label inside there or something wrapped around it so that the label actually stays on you'll know what you're dealing with. I uh, don't think you'll remember. Because once you start saving more than, let's say, half a dozen varieties, you're going to forget what's what and when you harvested it and things like that. Um, so, But long term, if you're actually building a real vault, I think the best thing you can do is go to a supplier and get Mylar bags of the appropriate size that are Ziplockable. And you can even, once you get them ready to go, you can seal them with a secondary seal. You seal up your Ziploc, you lay the edge of the bag down on, on an ironing board, and you run an iron across them. And if you're going to look, for say, for three, four, or more seasons, that's what you need to do. And if you get Jeff's seed vault and many other seed vaults, it's done commercially, it's done a little bit more extensively, but that's basically what's done. The seeds a desiccant inside mylar. That mylar then has most of the air removed, not all. The Ziploc is sealed, and the bag itself is sealed. So you have a double seal. So if either one fails, the other one remains. And it's really pretty easy to do. Uh, is it expensive? Yes. What is the value of your seed collection to you, though? And the reason I think you need a seed vault is some years you plant your seeds, and pest or disease or climate takes your crop and you have what's called a seed failure. And a lot of times when you're dealing with small producers of seed, you'll see a certain variety and they'll have their little description in their catalog or their website and they'll say not available this year due to seed failure. So if it can happen to them, it can definitely happen to us. Now if we don't have a reserve stock, now we've got to go out and buy more. We've got to go out and acquire more. And maybe if it's a rare seed variety, it's hard to find. Maybe if the shit has begun to hit the fan, the cost has gone way up, or it's impossible to even acquire seeds. See, this is where your seed banks come in. This is where I like you get a couple commercial seed banks, and you store them, let's say, in a freezer. 
take that ammo can. Like, here's what I did. Jeff sent me two of those seed banks. And I was greedy with them. And I took all of the seeds from one and crammed them into the other. So I've got a double seed bank. And then I took that can and I closed it up, took a few packets out to plant actually here. I'm going to leave behind vegetables for the new homeowner. Um, some lettuce and spinach and some things like that, beets, and uh, some peas. So the beds look good when I show the house. But most of it just stayed all sealed up. Put it in the bottom of the deep freezer. Well, that's going to extend the storage life 8, 10 years. And one little 30 can ammo can with the two together, you're looking at like almost 80,000 seeds with a 10-year storage life. Because cold puts it into a deeper state of hibernation, a deeper state of suspended animation. The problem is cold without proper storage, without without the mylar, without everything else, without the desiccant, with any moisture in there, forms ice. You don't want ice. You want cold, not ice. You don't want moisture on the seeds. A refrigerator is a great thing too. But moisture and cold, you still end up with the seed taking in some of that moisture. Could even sprout on you if it gets moist enough. So your seed banks need to be dark, low oxygen, low, low moisture, and as cold as possible within reason. You don't want to submerse this in uh, liquid nitrogen or anything like that. It's not what you're looking to do. Uh, typical refrigerator freezer temperatures. Root cellars, great places. Any place that's just cooler than normal. If nothing else, your air-conditioned home is better than a shed. Don't store these things in a garden shed. And remember, though, even when things do start to uh, to deteriorate, your seeds don't go bad. Your germination rates just drop. And an interesting experiment you can you can perform is if you have a lot of surplus seed, track your germination rates. And you can do that just with a, you know the wet paper towel, where you can sprout seeds on the paper towel and just sprout ten tomato seeds, or you know, for a better sample, about twenty. So twenty seeds from last year. How many sprout? Well, if um, 18 sprout, you got 90% germination. That's kind of low for your first year, but it's just an easy round number to understand. If five years into it, 10% of them sprout, that tomato basically has a 50% germination rate after, sto- after storing for five years. Does that mean you can't store that tomato seed for five years? No, it just means that you need to store twice the amount for that five-year period that you'll need at the end of that five-year period. And the reality is, folks, this stuff ain't rocket science. And even the seed manufacturers and the, the, the bank manufacturers that are saying four years, five years, what have you, is their shelf life, they're covering their ass. Many seeds will survive much longer with, with less uh, favorable conditions. One year, long after my grandfather, Andrew, had passed away, I, uh, I found this little pill bottle. And it said said a Parks Brandywine, which is an heirloom variety of tomato that's available from Park Seed Company and, of course, other companies as well. Uh, it's just an heirloom variety tomato that he had gotten from Parks. And I looked at that and said, huh, Grandpa saved some seeds. Now, I don't know how old they were. I know this was about 10 years after he passed away. And uh, I planted them. I uh, actually ended up planting those tomatoes in Pennsylvania while we were living up there. I had visited my dad's, and that's where I found these seeds, and I, I grew them. And uh, guess what? 
they sprouted at about 70%. About seven, I put, you know, I think I ended up planting like 10 of them because I didn't think they would even grow, but I wanted to see. Seven of them sprouted. I gave a couple away and I grew a few in our garden. Those seeds most likely were getting in the neighborhood of 15 years old. I would say it was about five years before his passing when he grew his last garden. 15-year-old seeds stored in a pill bottle in a cabinet in a shanty, which is kind of like a shed for those of you that aren't familiar with a shanty. Shanty really is a place people used to live, and they got turned into sheds if they were part of a homestead. So it was like the old house. It was like a one room with a basement and an attic. And uh, when they built the, the the real house in about, I think that house was built in like 1880, they left it standing, and um, it was our shed. And uh, it sat in there in a cabinet, so it had been through summers and winters in Pennsylvania, hot and cold as hell, both swings back up and down, in that pill bottle, but it was relatively dry, and it was in the dark. And I, I can't tell you how old they were, but I would surmise going on 15 years of age. So... If you do take additional steps, like Mylar, like making sure it's dry, making sure it's it, it's stored safely, um, you should get very, very long storage lives. It still makes sense to often grow out your, your stock and replenish it with new seed. And it makes a lot of sense to do things like, if you have seed that's three years old, and you've produced enough seed of the same variety this year to completely restore that stock, and you can't plant out all your three-year-old seed, Give it away if you can't exchange it for something else. Just give it away. Why hold on to something you're just going to keep continue to degrade its performance? And you can use that to spread gardening. Use the you know if you can't use it all, get a soil cube. You can make as many cubes and plants as you can find dirt. Start tons of plants. Give them away. Spread the infection. Gardening is a gateway drug to prepping. So use up those older seeds as you replenish your stocks. I also think it does make sense to put your seeds into some sort of a hard, airtight container overall. I love what Jeff's doing with the ammo cans, and I have to say, I'm kind of embarrassed that I never thought of it. What I've been using up till now, really not you know a super airtight or anything like that, but we buy coffee in those great big plastic red tubs from like Folgers. And we don't really buy folders. I'm kind of hooked on Starbucks. That's one of my vices, right? One of my expensive vices. But I don't go to the Starbucks store. I go to the store and I buy the Starbucks coffee and I make it at home. But we, we bought tons of those, those big giant red Folger ones, the plastic ones. So we saved them because they're a great container. So I have a few that I had saved all my seeds in. Jeff, you know, has this product now with these seeds in an ammo can. I'm like, and ammo cans everywhere. So my personal seed bank and my commercial seed banks are now all in 30 caliber ammo cans. And I have, you can label them on the outside, kind of what's in there, a listing or what have you. Um, and it just makes it really, really convenient. And are all my seeds stored in Mylar? No. No, a lot of my seeds are stored in, in Ziploc bags. If I want to store something long term though, I'm going to put it in Mylar. It's all up to you how long you want to store it. A year or two, something you grow all the time, really not that big a deal. If a rare seed that maybe, you know, and this is another thing, as you get into gardening more and more, you can only grow so much in a single season. So one season you might grow a particular variety of squash, and the next season you might grow a different variety of squash, and then a third, and then the next season, you know, fourth, go back to the first. As you're getting into these longer storage cycles with varieties, 
you know, consider mylar and, and, and taking a little bit bigger of a step to store those seeds. Maybe making them part of what goes into the bottom of the deep freezer or what have you. And uh, you'll get much longer storage life cycles if you do that. I also want you to start thinking about what you're saving, though. And I want you to save two types of seeds primarily for that long-term storage need. Uh, one is going to be seeds that produce quickly. Radishes, lettuces, greens, and things like that. They're not high in calories, but they're high in nutrition. They put fiber and food into your belly. And you're talking 20 to 40 days to production. And sometimes less. If you can do certain things like greenhouse growing or aquaponics or other things like that that can accelerate growth rates. Uh, even mini greenhouses, growing under polytunnel, uh, even little mini tunnels that go over your beds and things like that. You can grow lettuce, man, like crazy. And you can store millions of lettuce seeds. You can go out and buy several varieties and start storing your seeds. Let you know one black-seeded Simpson lettuce plant go to seed. It'll send up a seed uh, trunk that's about four feet high. And you take that over a, a screen and, and beat that thing. And I mean, you'll get a, a handful of seed. It almost looks like a handful of grain, except they're very, very tiny. So you can have massive amounts of lettuce seed, massive varieties of that. And I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said that It was some, some, something virtuous or something like that about sowing, but it should be part of your life to sow during the growing season a thimble full, uh, a thimble sized, uh, amount of lettuce seed every week. A thimble of lettuce seed is a lot of plants, guys. But basically it's an endless supply of salad. So I think we should, anything we can grow quick, And fast should be part of our long-term storage. And the other thing is things that provide calories. Uh, so this is, you know, one of the gr corns and grains uh, and beans. Beans and corn for the home gardener are your two best sources of calories that will store long easily. Sweet potato and potato varieties are great, but it's really hard to really grow potatoes from true seed. And it's, it's, it's a much more laborious process and great if you want to do it, but, uh, corn and, 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 uh, legumes are your two real calorie crops for the home garden. With corn, I want you to start considering possibly, uh, buying your sweet corn from a local producer that grows organically or something like that, or even just the store. And again, understand with corn, there's going to be some GMO traits passed around. It's, Some people just won't eat it anymore. Again, I think if I grow pure corn and there's some cross-pollination, I, I got to live with it. I'm probably breathing in as much as, uh, as getting in there. Um, but corn takes a lot of nitrogen, a lot of fertility, a lot of water, and it doesn't really lend itself to being grown in a lot of home-grown environments because it takes up so much space and energy. But if you're going to grow corn, consider growing your, your flower-type corns, your Indian varieties, your reds, your blues, your painted mountains, and things like this, because it takes a lot less energy, and it takes a lot less moisture, and it takes a lot less work, and it's a lot less susceptible to pests, because these are old varieties of corn. These are the varieties of corn that were developed thousands of years ago. So consider growing those, and picked young, they can still be a sweet corn, but they store really well. And they make flour, and there's a calorie crop. And then your legumes are your other calorie crops. And if you can grow grains, if you can grow wheat or barley or things like that, I think you'll find at home production levels it's kind of tough. It's a lot of work for a couple loaves of bread. Um, but I guess the big thing is to understand that some seeds are food, and some food is seed. So if you went out and bought a massive amount of uh, red flower corn or a blue flower corn or something like that, 
and stored it for food storage and didn't go full tilt with the oxygen depletion, uh, but stored it in a bucket in mylar with, uh, with the desiccant. You basically got a giant bucket full of seed and a giant bucket full of food. And that could be done with pinto beans. That could be done with any type. But you, if you're going to do this with the seed in mind, you need a seed quality uh, product. And that means you're probably not going down to your general store and scooping pinto beans out of the bin. You don't know their source. You don't know if they're a hybrid. You don't know what their reproduction levels are. But some seed is food. And I guess the best way to get a large volume of seed quality legume would be to plant a massive bean patch of a single variety and take some of it away and put it in a long-term storage. And it could be planted. So with your, your long-term seed storage, think large quantities of food that can be used as seed, and think large quantities of quick-growing things, not as your entire seed bank, but as your core for your personal seed banks that you're growing. Um, I also want you to realize that buying seeds is a good investment. It doesn't mean go out tomorrow and buy $100 worth of seeds that you're never going to grow because you don't know what to do with them. But when you do buy, especially rare varieties, heirloom varieties that are going to reproduce true to type for you, plant them in the ground, grow them, produce more seed, it's one of the best investments you can get. Think about it this way. Something like orach, a wild plant that's now cultivated domestically. You plant, you go out and you buy a little packet of seeds for about three or four dollars. And you plant the heck out of it this year, all through the spring and then late summer, because it's kind of a cool weather plant. Can't handle frost, but doesn't like the real heavy heat of summer. But that spring crop, as it starts to get big, you let a couple of them just go. Two or three of them just go. And the heat comes, and they don't die. What happens is they, they what's called bolt. They go to seed. And they grow really tall and get really woody, and they're not really great for uh, for harvesting anymore. You still pull a few leaves off them, but the leaves get tougher, not as good a flavor. And all of a sudden, these little seeds start to form all over this plant. And then you go out to these two plants with a gallon Ziploc bag, all right? And you start pulling seeds off of them. And you'll damn near off of two full-grown orage plants fill like half of a one-gallon Ziploc bag. Now, now, effectively, you paid 2 or $3 for a half a gallon of seed. Now, how much can you produce next year in the following year? And now you have a unique seed variety to trade or give away or barter with or sell. Seeds are an investment because they actually grow. I mean, isn't that ironic that we would actually view things that grow as an investment? You know, your financial liar says, oh, your 401k is an investment. Well, I've, 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 I've lost 10% of my, my money this year. Oh, it's still an investment. It's for the long term. As long as you plant seeds, they grow. You know, outside of some catastrophe, it grows and it produces more seed. So please see your seeds in your seed bank as an investment. And... Uh, you know, it, it's important that, again, you consider if you're going to be buying seeds and you want to support this show and the work I do, even if you're not in the MSB, even if you never send me a penny, I'm okay with that. I, I feel blessed by every single person that listens to this show, whether you ever buy anything from us at the gear shop or, or, or what have you. But if you're going to buy seeds anyway, start with our supporters. And again, our supporters are Seed Savers Exchange, High Mowing, and Victory. And I, I hope to add a few more. And let me remind you again what they do for the Members Brigade. Seed Savers Exchange, $10 off your first membership, first year membership. 
Um, that's 25% off the membership cost of 40 bucks, by the way. High mowing, free shipping on all your orders. That's, that's huge benefit. And, uh, Victory gets 10% off. And I don't take, you know, they're not paying me. They're not sponsors. They're supporters of the brigade. And that's, that's it. And it's, they, they do that to support you guys more than me. Um, so consider starting with our supporters. I also want you to think about trading. Seed Savers Exchange is a great place. I want to talk about them at the very end, so I'll, I'll hold off on that. But Johnny Max has the free seed exchange. All kinds of people getting together there. We have a seed exchange board in our forum. Most forums on gardening and homesteading have people looking to trade seeds with you. There's people everywhere. Everybody you know that has a garden, talk to them about trading seeds with each other. Trade seeds. It builds community. And please give away some seeds. If you're, if you did a great year this year, or you do a great year this year with your tomatoes, and you grow some heirloom variety tomato that does wonderful for you, 10 tomatoes will produce tens of thousands of seeds. Well, it's probably an exaggeration. You get about 200 seeds out of a tomato. So 10 tomatoes would produce, what, 20,000 seeds? What are you going to do with 20,000 tomato seeds? How much exchanging are you going to do with a common tomato? But how much can you give away? So I challenge you not just to store your seeds, but give them away. Teach other people to garden. Bring people to prepping the easy way. It's very hard to get somebody who's living like a grasshopper to comprehend the concept that tomorrow everything they've based their existence on could go away. Even when they know it's true, they don't want to hear that. For the love of God, they, especially the person that's deeply in debt and they, they've been killing themselves at their corporate job, they're not ready yet. But say, hey, look, here's some seeds. Here's a little, you know, put a little printout. How to start your seeds. You know, give them, give them everything. Give them some peat pots or make up some newspaper pots or, you know, if you have a soil cube, make them some cubes. Teach them how to do it. Share it. Infect others with the illness that is the cure. When we talk so much about genetically modified foods, do you know why they're able to do this? Because there's such a demand for food to be produced today because there's shortages of food. Like I said, there are people starving in the world today. And you know why? People don't know how to feed themselves. And don't think it can't happen here. So instead of telling your neighbor, oh, look, we're all going to starve, and they're going to think you're nuts, no matter how rational you are with that message, Saying, well, not tomorrow, not next week, God knows when, but sooner or later, the people in this country are going to face food shortages or inflation where there's plenty of food, but you can't afford it. I won't believe you. What will prevent the problem is the average American growing 10% of their food. Just 10%. Just 10. So instead of worrying about the problem and spreading the, the news about the problem, spread the solution. And you do that with seeds, and you do that with plants, and you do that when you have that bumper crop of tomatoes. Put them in a bag. Take them to the neighbor. Hand them out. When they cut that tomato up and eat it, they're going to realize nothing from a store tastes like that. How did you do that? I can't tell you how many people I've given a, a pepper to. What, what, what kind of pepper was that? It's a sweet pepper. No, 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 no. What, what kind? California Wonder. It doesn't taste like a store-bought pepper. It's because it's not. Store-bought pepper tastes okay, but it's really great, big, beautiful-looking in the display case. 
but it's mostly tastes like kind of pepper flavored water. This thing had flavor. How did you do that? I planted a seed. It took, turned into a plant. I took the plant. I put it into the ground and a pepper showed up and I pulled the pepper off and I gave it to you. That must be hard. No, let me show you. And if you get people producing food in the garden, they're going to produce more than they can eat in a season. And then what do they have? They have a surplus. And when they have a surplus, they need to know what to do with it. When they need to know what to do with it, they look for ways to store it. So they learn about canning and dehydration and flash freezing and all that other good stuff. So then they start storing food and you've tricked them into success. That's what seed savings really all about. And I really think on the trading, I want to reemphasize one more thing before I close up. Please try to trade not just across the country. And these seed exchanges are great. But look to trade, if you can, with people locally, especially even people growing the same thing you're growing. If you're growing really kick-ass jalapenos, and you find another guy that's growing kick-ass jalapenos, and you know they're the same variety, This is important, the same variety. Um, now, you might want to trade just to get new varieties in, but if you want to just start, you, you know, basically crossing your own genes with them, you know, you grow 12 jalapenos in, in nice close rows so they, to encourage the cross-pollination, to have your heirloom jalapeno, and it's like a jalapeno M, and this guy has the same thing. I think that's actually a hybrid, so scratch that. But two heirloom variety jalapenos are the same heirloom variety jalapeno. Trade seeds with him. Give them 10. Take 10 from, you know, take 10 from him. Next year, put all those seeds in. You'll get at least six plants, right? And then six of your own. And instead of 12 of your own, grow six and six. And get new adaptations of the same strain into your, your variety. Don't do that every year. But maybe do that after you've got two generations. And he's got a couple generations. Throw those together and expand that because he's growing them down the road. It's the same variety with the same adaptations and it'll strengthen the diversity of your stock to do things like that and it, let's say you're not growing jalapenos well who better to get jalapeno seeds from than someone local to you that's had them in your area for five years and when he's looking for a new variety of squash and you've been growing you know some kind of a cool squash for, for five years who better than he than, than you to get seeds from And I think it's really important that we do that locally, not just internationally and not just, you know, interstate as well. Um, last, I want to actually encourage you today to consider joining Seed Savers Exchange. Seed Savers Exchange is the largest organization for the preservation of our seed diversity in the world. It costs $40 a year to be a member, and you do get some benefits. They give you a book that looks like a phone book, it's so thick. And it's every person that's a listed member. A listed member is somebody that has something to offer. And how to contact them and what they'll take for their seeds. And most of them will take a few bucks for some seeds if you have nothing to exchange. That same book is available by login on their, on their website. You can log in and search online. And what I like about the online search is you can find local growers. You can find someone in North Texas if you live in North Texas or someone in Georgia if you live in Georgia and see if they have the seed varieties you're looking for because you've got that local adaptation. You can also say, well, there's no one in North Texas. What climate's a lot like North Texas? Southern Oklahoma. So is there someone in Southern Oklahoma? Is there someone, you know, in, in northern, north, north, northeastern, or north, northwestern Louisiana, southwestern Arkansas? For that matter, is there someone in a part of California that has a very similar climate? 
So you can find people based on where they are with the online version. They send you four publications a year about the work they're doing with informative articles. So look at that as like kind of a magazine subscription to a quarterly magazine. You get 10% off all purchases. And, and those are all great benefits. But what I want you to really understand is look at it as a charitable contribution you can't deduct. It's not a 501c, so you can't deduct it from your income tax. But I consider my annual membership to Seed Savers a contribution. I really do. Because they catalog over 13,000 varieties of seeds. No other company in the world can do that. You cannot afford to do that and be profitable as a seed catalog company. It can't be done without the members and the member contributions. Because no one is going to buy enough of some weird strain of cherry tomato that's very unknown but unique to keep it, keep it as a profitable product. But with these contributions, they're able to do this type of work. Because what they have to do, because of separation distances, all the things we talked about, they can't grow out everything every year. They have to rotate it through their farm. And I'm talking about the actual exchange farm, the, the big operation, the catalog where you can buy seeds from, not just the stuff the members are doing. So they work to preserve these varieties, and the members work to preserve these varieties together. And with everything I told you about GMOs yesterday, everything I told you about the lobbying in government, everything I told you about what's going on, to me, I do find it very similar to the way that our, our rights for firearms are attacked. And there are not a lot of organizations that I'm a member of, that I have to pay to be a member of, but there's certain ones that when the renewal comes and Dorothy goes, do we renew this this year? I just go, D did you even ask me? And Seed Savers is one and the NRA is another, along with Oath Keepers. Those are my three big ones I support. I'm not saying that everybody listening to me today should join Seed Savers. I'm saying please consider it. Please consider it. If you're broke, don't do it. If you're broke, don't join my MSB, for God's sakes. You know, if you're deeply in debt, wait till you get out of debt. But if you're going to be buying seeds and you, you would take advantage of the benefits and or you just have ability, you know, if you're going to give some charity $1,000 this year, give them $960 and throw $40 over to Seed Savers. They're doing important work that nobody else is doing. So I wanted to throw that in at the end of today's show. I know it went kind of long, but there's a lot of material to cover today. Hopefully you have a new understanding now of seeds, hybrids, genetically modified seeds. Hopefully now you have a new understanding of harnessing your own power when it comes to creating your own seed banks and saving your own seed banks. Hopefully now you get that this is really something that everybody should be doing. And in fact, it's something everybody used to do. Hopefully I've demystified it for you. And again, any of the questions you have about separation distances, isolation, how you save seeds for a particular variety of plant, check out seedsave.org. It's probably going to be there for you. And remember, it ain't that hard. People have been doing it for thousands of years, and you can do it too. Uh, and if you do it the right way, you can use it to spread the message of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, liberty, and independence. Because nothing makes you as independent is having control over the food that you put into your mouth, into your body, and into the mouths and bodies of your family. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Show.